dismiss the children for Children's Church and ask the rest of you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. What a delight to see the children eagerly run to their class. We've not seen that in a long time, really. And it's good to have them here with us, to hear their voices singing praises to God and their joy to run, uh, to learn more about Jesus. That's how good it is that we can be together as a church family again. Read now Isaiah 28, beginning with verse 14. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill? sow cumin and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border. For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. 
This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Word of warning to those who trust other gods instead of trusting the Lord, who use various techniques thinking that they will somehow escape death instead of trusting in the Lord. Please turn now in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 19. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul is in prison, concerned for his church. He can't go visit to help and encourage them in the challenges they were facing. And so he does what he can do. He writes a letter. We pick up the reading of that letter in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you that you have not hidden the truth from us but you have revealed it to us. In preserving the scriptures, in sending your Son for our salvation, we ask this morning that you would stir our hearts and that you would open the ground, that the seed of your word might be firmly planted and deeply planted that it would take root, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold Christ, that you would unplug our ears, that we might hear him speaking to us in our need. Lord, I ask you that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Over the past several weeks, my siblings and I at a distance have come to realize that my parents are no longer able to live alone and care for themselves so that they need to move out of the home that they've lived in for over 62 years and move to an assisted living facility been very difficult for them, first to convince them that they need to move, and then to find a place to which they would be comfortable moving. They thought they had found one, but it turned out not to be a good fit, and so they have to start over, and now they've found a place that they think this is really it, but they just found out as they're making the final arrangements to be able to move there 
that some of the, a couple of the residents have tested positive for COVID. And so now um, things are very restrictive there. Visitation is only one hour maximum at a time and only in limited times. And while my siblings uh, up until the past few weeks have were not there every day, more like once a week when they would go, they would at least stay for several hours. And, and so this is a great concern to them. It's made them even reluctant to move after we thought everything was all decided. Indeed, as deadly as the coronavirus has been for so many people, our society is only beginning to understand the devastation of the isolation that our response to the pandemic is causing the people. And it seems that in some cases, the solution of isolation has been more devastating and more deadly than the pandemic itself. There's growing concern for the impact of the isolation, not just on elderly people, but on our school children who have not been able to go to school. And has that supposed cure actually been worse for them as young children than the virus would itself? And similar questions are beginning to be raised about the church as well. When should the church begin to assemble and gather more fully as in the past? When will people return to corporate worship? And even will people return to corporate worship? There's a lot of online discussion amongst pastors and churchmen and women about what is the church going to look like in the next year or two years as hopefully we get beyond this pandemic? What is going to be different? What will have changed? Will people become too comfortable staying away, staying at home? Is it more convenient just rolling out of bed and looking a mess and flip on the computer and be done with it? No driving. No people to have to talk to, just me, myself, my computer screen, and Jesus. What will the church look like? Well, Paul's letter to the churches at Ephesus and the surrounding regions is helpful for thinking through this question. Paul was imprisoned for his faith. He could not visit the churches to show his care, he wrote this letter so that we could understand his care for the church and what that meant and what he wanted for the church, what he would have said had he come to visit the church. In chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul gave his initial greetings and then he burst forth into a doxology of praise to God for the church and all that God had done to bring the church together. And then 
he offered a, a deep prayer for the church, what he wanted God to do for the church. And then in chapter 2, he gets into the meat of his concerns. He gets into the body of the letter. In verses 1 through 10, he addresses how God in Christ has overcome individual alienation and isolation from God. Whether or not people were aware of it, the truth is they were dead in their transgressions and sins, and only God could restore them to himself, and he did so in Christ. And then in verses 11 to 18, he begins to speak to the theological, cultural divisions within the church itself. And how Christ came to break the dividing wall, the main uh, dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile in terms of their approach to God in order that in Him they together could access God and no longer be alienated that they might come to God as their heavenly Father. And now in our text this morning, Paul sums up what he has said thus far to show what the church is and what is our place in the church and why that is important. Those who are reconciled to God by Christ are never meant to live the Christian life alone in isolation from other believers. For when Christ reconciles you to God, he does so by bringing you into a fellowship firmly founded on Christ himself. It is our awareness of being a fellowship firmly founded on Christ himself that must direct the life that we live as the people of God. You aren't expected to, and in fact, you are not able to live the Christian life all on your own, apart from the church. You need the people of God. We were not meant to live in isolation from one another. And the computer screen is no substitute for seeing one another face to face. Now, I'm not commenting here about the rightness or wrongness with your health situation of you coming to gather with us today. But I am saying that what our text is teaching us is that we need one another. We were not meant to function alone. The God who reconciled you to himself has also reconciled you to other people. And he has not done so in isolation, but in community with fellow believers. It's not just that we're reconciled to God, and as those reconciled to God, that we can say, well, now we can be friendly to one another, but we can be friendly to one another at a distance. But that's not what he meant. That's not his plan, and this is what he sets forth here. 
in verse 19, he is emphasizing very clearly that what he is about to say is a summation of all that he has previously said in chapter 2 about our alienation from God and being reconciled in Christ to God, our alienation from one another and the barrier wall being broken down so that we might in Christ be one new man brought back to God. He does this by using two particles to introduce the sentence. Verse 19, so then, in the Greek, it's also two Particles And each of those particles on their own is an inferential particle indicating that what follows comes directly from what preceded it. This is one of the very few places where these two particles are put together and they're put together to emphasize in a big way that what follows necessarily comes on what has preceded. It's like he's written it in bold. So then... Listen up. You accept that this is true. You understand you've been reconciled to God by Christ. You understand that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles has been broken and overcome. So that there aren't different factions, but there's only one new man in Christ. And the way he sums it all up is by giving us three different metaphors highlighting in different ways the unity and the community of the church, politically, familially, and religiously. The first point he makes through the first metaphor is that Christ brings believers to be fully accepted members of God's kingdom. When Christ brings you to God, he brings you to be fully accepted members of God's kingdom. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Previously in verse 12, he says, remember you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. That was the situation of the Gentiles. They were apart from God. They were Apart from the kingdom of God, from the commonwealth of Israel, they were strangers to the promises and the covenants. The word commonwealth and the word citizen in verse 19 are related words. The word stranger in verse 12 to the covenants of promise is the same word as strangers. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Now, a stranger was a person from a different land who was temporarily around you. You normally don't see that person, but now they're here. They're visiting. They're a stranger. They may not speak your language. They may not understand your customs. Even if you do, they don't live there. They're a stranger. Now, an alien is somebody from a different land who is residing more permanently, but they're not a citizen. In that sense, they still don't belong. They don't operate under the rules that are available to all the other citizens. We as a nation are wrestling with this now, with the influx of all these uh, 
immigrants at the southern border? And what about people trying to enter legally and some entering illegally? And is there just cause for their coming in? And what do we do with them when they get in? And how can we properly care for them? But they're not citizens. And so what are the implications? And he's foreseen this. And what he's saying is, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens. We've been praying with the Hongs for a long time that they might get the green card so they could rest assured, be with us, not have any uncertainty. We want them to get that green card. Tomorrow, one of our ESL students is going to take her vows of citizenship in Baltimore. Anne's going to accompany her for this special occasion because once she takes those vows, she's a citizen. She will be a fellow citizen with all the rights and privileges thereof. Oh, and Milton's pointing to himself. It's a good thing to be a citizen. When you first come to the U.S., you're a stranger. When you settle here, you may have to live as an alien for a long time before you can become a citizen. But you know what? In God's kingdom, there are no strangers and there are no aliens. If you come to Christ, you come to the U.S., you'll be a stranger or an alien. You come to Christ, you are a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, who are the saints? Well, the saints are all the people of God. The word is the adjective holy, made into a noun, holy ones, but that is a word that Paul typically uses to refer to all Christians. And so, for example, in Ephesians 1.1, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's who he's writing. Well, he's writing to the Christians there. In 1.15, he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Well, he's talking about their love for one another. As Christians, by this shall all men know, Jesus said, you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And he's praising them for that love. He gives thanks that they have love for one another, for the saints. In verse 18, he wants them to know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, in the people of God. So he's talking here about being fellow citizens In God's kingdom. You don't have to wait for a green card. You don't have to wait a certain number of years before you can become a citizen. He says, if you come, this is what you are. You're no longer a stranger or an alien. You are a fellow citizen with the saints. With all the rights and privileges thereof. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks of our citizenship. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Yes, we are either citizens of one country or another here on earth, and there are advantages to being citizens of the United States. That's why so many people come here. But our real citizenship is in heaven, and there are no saints. There are no uh, strangers and aliens. When you come to Christ, you are made a fellow citizen in the kingdom of God. But it gets even better. It's not just that you are a fellow citizen, but Christ brings believers to be fully accepted members of God's family. We continue reading in verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Remember in verse 18 we were told that through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We are to look to God as our Father. And now he says it's because there is a real relationship there. It's not just a term of respect. There is a relationship because we are members of God's household. You'll remember at the beginning in his word of doxology in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, even as God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's what God has done for us in Christ. He made us part of the family. We're no longer orphans. We're no longer on our own. We are part of a family. We have been adopted through Christ. That word household, we are members of God's household to understand just how much more significant that is than just being a citizen. And citizenship is a big deal. Your life is different when you're a citizen. But in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, it says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's talking about us in our household. If we don't treat the members of our family and care for them, that means we're worse than an unbeliever. But here in Ephesians 2, we're told that we are members of God's household. And God is no unbeliever. He takes care of his children. He takes care of his family. But you see, this is, this is what all this means. That we were alienated from God and God made us alive in Christ and raised us and brought us into the heavenly realms and united us with Christ and that being united to Christ, he's broken the barriers between Jew and Gentile, the, the theological or cultural differences, he's broken those. There is only one new man, as it were, that he brings back to reconcile to God, and we have access to God through him. This, this idea of a household speaks of an intimate relationship with God. We are part of his family. 
And what a, what a thing it is to finally have a family. We have some orphans that have been adopted into families in our church. And to have no family and then to have a family. And what Paul is saying is that when you come to Christ now, you have a family. The household of God now is your family. But in Greek, the word house, for house, can mean both the structure, but it also can mean the people in the structure. And so here he talks about his household. We are members of the family of God. And that now drives him to a third metaphor for what it means to be brought to Christ. And that is that Christ brings believers to be fully accepted building blocks in God's holy temple. Ephesians 2.20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word house, the root of that word is basically O-I-K, O-S, oikos. In this, these four verses, there are eight different words that have that root as part of it, which binds this whole thing together of the distinct privilege it is to belong to Christ, to be a fellow citizen in his kingdom, to be a member of his household, but then finally to be part of the building blocks of this temple, this living temple, this growing temple that God himself is building. And there are three things at least he emphasizes here. First of all, when you are made a part of God's temple, you are firmly founded in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now you'll remember Jesus told a parable about what kind of foundation are you building on? Are you building your life upon sand that's going to wash away? Or are you building your life upon the rock, which will always be there? And he says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The same kind of language is found in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and somebody else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, etc., here he's talking about a foundation, but here he says there's no other foundation than Christ. 
And some people say, yeah, but now he's contradicting himself because in Ephesians 2, he says we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does he mean here? He's really saying the same thing using one metaphor and tweaking it slightly in a different way. In the first, in Colossians, he's, as an apostle, is building a foundation. Here, uh, the apostles are part of the foundation. But what are apostles and prophets? And the prophets here are probably not Old Testament prophets. He's probably referring to the New Testament prophets that worked with the apostles in order that the truth of Christ would spread quickly across the globe quicker than it would take for the letters of the New Testament to be assembled so that people would understand the message of Christ. What he's talking about is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. That is the foundation. What were they teaching? Well, their teaching was the revelation about Jesus, who he was. And this is made clear when he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, Christ here is elevated above the apostles and prophets by the emphatic Christ himself. And it says he is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone in the building because it was on that stone that the weight of the whole building would rest and it, would, and it was by that stone that the direction of the building would be determined. However the faces were cut on that stone, as stone began being put against stone, if you wanted a 90-degree angle or a 45-degree angle, whatever shape building you wanted, it depended on the cornerstone because the way you laid it, the way it was cut, that's how it would be. So for stability and for design, the foundation is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And Christ is the main cornerstone. So it is Christ. And we are firmly founded on him as the rock, not on sand. But to be part of God's building means that you have a firm foundation. And we are like stones being built on that foundation. And we have a strong foundation underneath us because it's Christ himself. So we are firmly founded in Christ. But we are also fittingly formed by Christ to fit together into that building. In verse 21, he says, In Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's a picture here, a very careful building. Some of you may have had the privilege to be able to build your own house or to have your own house built. My memory is correct. I think Blair and Karen, they built their own house. By their own hands. They were very careful with how they did it. They wanted it to be just right. 
Now, in those days, when they built something like a temple, they didn't use mortar. It was just the stones were cut and shaped very carefully, and you would scarcely be able to find the line because they were so smooth when they were put together. And here the picture is that we are being carefully shaped and fit together to be part of this one temple, a holy temple to the Lord. And it's a growing temple as God is drawing more and more people to himself. He has a place in his holy temple. Now, temple was a place of worship to the Lord. And so, if you are brought to Christ, you see, it's not... It's the difference between marbles and building blocks. God is not just collecting marbles in his marble bag and every once in a while dumping them all out so people can see how beautiful they are. Most of the time when they're in the bag, you don't even see them. You forget about them. But no, we're building blocks, you see, and this temple is going up and it's a beautiful thing to see. And he says, you're a part of that. You're being carefully fitted, joined together with one another. You see, you need one another. One stone does not a temple make. The beauty of the temple is not in any individual stones. It is in how the stones all fit together and how they rise towards the sky and how they lift our eyes towards heaven. And the beauty of the construction work and and the beauty of the metals and gems that go into this building. In whom? It's in Christ. It's as we belong to him that we're fit together. But we're fit together we're growing at the same he keeps mixing metaphors now he's talking about plants growing but he's got to in order to to talk about how do we who are we as Christians we are part of God's temple and it's a growing temple and it's a very carefully put together temple and if you are trusting in Jesus you are part of that building Christ is building his church and he's building his church person by person shaping and molding and fashioning you that you'll fit together with everyone else. We don't need more. Christ himself is shaping us and as we'll see in the next verse he sends the Holy Spirit glue that holds us all together. Not only we fittingly formed in Christ, but we're carefully and jointly designed as a dwelling place of God. Verse 22, in Christ you also are being built together 
See, above you're joined together, now you're built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's not just that God sends his Spirit into our hearts to live there, but it's that we as a church are the dwelling place of God and that God lives in us and among us as a corporate body. You can't do that on your own. You need one another. We have to have one another. God brings us together in bringing us to Christ. He brings us to Christ to reconcile us to himself, but he brings us to Christ that we might be together in Christ. One new man, as it were, reconciled to God, fully reconciled to one another. A fellowship, not just individual, but a fellowship, a fellowship fit together, a fellowship firmly founded on Christ. And on the revelation of Christ in and through the apostles and prophets who brought together the Old Testament and, and showed how it, it all was pointing to Jesus and how Christ who came and died and was resurrected and is now ascended into heaven and one day going to return. It's all about him and he's calling us as a people, not just as individuals, but he's calling us as individuals to be a part of his kingdom, a part of his family, a part of this beautiful building where God will reveal his glory. Not just in us individually, but as we are fit together, as we love one another through our love, will be seen to be his disciples because God himself will be living in us and revealing himself through us. And so it should be that when new people come into our fellowship, when they gather with us for worship, it ought to be that they leave saying, surely God was in this place. As they see how we treat one another and speak to one another. We just can't do it without one another. We never were meant to. God is building a kingdom. And he's building a family. And he's building a temple where he will dwell. And our hope is that when Christ returns, we will dwell with God forever and ever. We were meant for one another. We need one another. Dear friends, if, if you right now are alienated from God and from Jesus Christ, if you don't know him, there is good news that in Christ you are being invited 
to become part of a family, part of a kingdom, part of God's glorious business. You need not be alone. You are not meant to be an orphan. God is calling you through his son to himself. And I urge you to draw near to him, to call out to him. You see, the whole trinity is involved here. In Christ, you are also being built together for a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the work of God bringing people together to glorify himself. And all you have to do is ask. And look to Jesus as the one who alone can work this in you. He'd love to help you find out more how he does that. And how you can know that you finally belong. That you're no longer alone. But if you are a believer, but during this time of isolation you felt yourself drifting a little bit or you weighed down by this isolation or by the cares of life, dear friends, remember, you are not alone. You're not alone. Christ has brought you not only to himself, he's brought you to be part of a family, of his kingdom. As a choice properly fit stone in his temple, his living temple. We need to remember that when we receive Christ, we receive one another. And Christ himself seals that fellowship we have with one another by the sacrament that he left for us. Lord's Supper. You see, this is a table, and a table speaks of family. It speaks of fellowship. And he invites his people to the family table to be reminded that you belong to God. But it's not just that you belong to God, but you belong to this family, this expression of God's kingdom here on earth, that you are one of the building blocks that God is making where he will display all of his splendor. Dear friends, we can't be Christians alone. We need one another. Let us rejoice now as the external restrictions are slowly being lifted. Let us, even if we can't yet meet together, hunger for that day when we can fully be together face to face. And may we bless one another as we gather in Christ as his kingdom, his family, his temple, and all to his glory. Almighty God and Father, we are humbled by your care that you exerted in not just bringing us to Christ, that we might be restored to you. 
from which our sins had been a serious wall between us. You not only broke down that wall, but you broke down the walls between people. You brought us together so that together we might come to you in Jesus. And you are even now fitting us and forming and fashioning us that we would be that picture of heavenly glory, that temple where God himself lives. Oh Lord, make this true. Oh Lord, give us joy and peace knowing that we're not alone, but that you are the one continuously working to build us, to fashion us together. And so may we more and more help one another to carry one another's burdens and lift one another up and to complete and encourage one another that we would be for the world a living picture of God's grace and of God's glory. How we thank you for Jesus who brings us all together. We thank you for this day that we might come together and offer our worship to you. And so we pray to you as Jesus himself has taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.